Turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 22. And we're going to try to get from chapter 22, verse 16, to chapter 23, verse 19. The title tonight is Obedience and Love for All Men. And tonight we will finish the book of the law as it is presented in Exodus. So this section of Exodus is called the book of the law because it covers the laws that the people had to, had to obey. And there will be a section in Leviticus like this, and there'll be one in Deuteronomy like this, but tonight we will get to the end of the one in Exodus. So once again, these are going to be loosely structured commandments. This was not just religious meditation. This was legal language. This is why some of this seems kind of odd to be in the Bible alongside who shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? This was actually used in judicial matters in Israel. And I hope that as we go through this, you have been glad to be a new covenant believer without getting into all the great detail of this as we have in recent months in the book of romans these laws as such are not binding upon us except as they reveal the heart of god and true righteousness there are lots of folks that want to be as paul said teachers of the law and want to try and bring us back under the yoke of the law but i've never yet met anybody that wants us to keep all of it but James chapter 2, verse 10, the apostle said, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You don't get to pick and choose which ones you like. You don't get to divide it between so-called moral and spiritual and ceremonial. The Bible doesn't do that, so we will not. It's a blessing to live under grace. But we still have so much to learn from God's good law as we go through this. Over and over again, the New Testament says, Is the law a bad thing? No. It's a good thing. But it served its purpose. And it continues to serve its purpose as it reveals the heart of God to us today. So let's go through this. We're going to move briskly through each section. A lot of different things to talk about. And we're going to begin with verses 16 and 17 of Exodus chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So we move out of laws. Last time, a lot having to do with property, with employment. And now we're, at least for this part, starting to get into things that are more personal. And he comes right out of the gate in verse 16 with that of fornication. Fornication is an old-fashioned word we don't use much anymore, but we ought to. To fornicate means to have sexual relations prior to marriage. And while it is something that happens all the time, not only in personal lives, but on television and everywhere else, it's important for us to remember this is a terrible sin to commit. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality, like Joseph did. Get out of there. Don't sit there and try to handle it. Leave. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, Paul said. There's something unique about sexual sin. I think we understand that. God created sex to be within the bounds of monogamous, heterosexual marriage only. And as time goes on, we have to keep adding to the qualifiers when we say marriage, but that is what the Lord meant. So in the law... If a man seduced a woman, and I suppose this could go the other way as well, that if a woman seduced a man, Proverbs has an awful lot to say about that. But if a man did this, he was obligated to marry her. According to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, they had become one flesh. And it was only right that he marry her. And this is something that is so foreign to us. The Bible says that if you have sex with somebody before you're married, you need to get married right away. And there was financial penalties associated with that. And that, of course, is a, is a cultural matter. The financial cost of the bride price would be required of him. Now, we, I've talked about this before, but we hear the idea of a bride price, and we're just so shocked and defended, even though that's how it's been done almost everywhere and still is to this day. And it's important to, to remember, and I hope you've seen as we've gone through the law already, there are all kinds of protections for women, especially sexually, in the Old Testament. So don't, don't buy the feminist thing that the Bible is always beaten down on women. They were buying and selling their daughters. No, no, no. 
the bride price was established probably and primarily because in, in this culture, you didn't have one guy that went out and did the work. Everybody was living on the farm. They were working the vineyard, whatever it was. So the loss of a daughter, the loss of a pair of hands mattered. All of a sudden now, who's going who's gonna to pick up where she left off? There was a cost associated with it. So you're paying for the loss of her value, actually. So it's not devaluing her. It's actually increasing her value. And if, in my opinion, based on a lot of the women I've known, they probably would have been just casually dropping what their bride price would have been to one another as they talked about their weddings. How much did your husband pay for you? Oh, only, only 10 shekels. Wow, you know, in my day, a woman would go for 15. But you know, you kids are great too. But it's important to also know this. The bride price, here's something else to think about, concerned the financial responsibility of the husband. Are you ready to marry my daughter? Every man in here has asked that question if he's, if he's had his daughter get married. How do I know you're going to be able to provide for my daughter? I want to see some money up front. <laughs> I want to know that you can, you can afford this. So there, there's, a, there's a way of main, making sure that the person, the man was responsible and prepared and that he had this kind of money to give for this woman. So let's not put our cultural preferences. I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying they did it differently. We do it differently, but you can draw the principle out of here. So if you slept with this woman, you were required to marry her and pay the bride price. So you didn't just get to say, oh, well, we've already had sex, therefore we're already married in God's eyes so we can get married. God goes, you are not going to cheapen marriage that way. You still have to pay. And he says, now what if dad says, uh-uh, no way. I don't care what you've done. It says he utterly refuses. And in most houses, when dad utterly refuses something, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But he still had to pay. You still had to pay the bride price. It would cost you something to have premarital sex in the Bible. And I think there's something here to be said, too. While I think in most, or I shall say many cases, if somebody is engaging in a sexual relationship, especially if there is a child involved, most of the time they ought to be married. You're already acting like husband and wife. It's time for you to step up and do that. Not every time. Not in every case. And I can think of a few that I know of. It's like, you know what? Y'all sinned and did something that was wrong, but I, I'm not about to force you to continue into something that's just going to get worse and worse. The Bible makes allowance for that. Of course, this is all in the context of sin, so none of it would have been God's ideal and God's will. Sexual deviance is the cause of more suffering than just about anything else, isn't it? God made marriage for that reason. It's really masterful. I've been thinking about this lately. By, by confining sex to marriage, God really takes care of us as people. If you're going to do it God's way, now forget if you're going to say, I'm going to do whatever I want. But if you're going to do it God's way, say, if you, all right, I know that you're young. I know that you're hot-blooded. I know that you love each other and you want to be together. Okay, grow up. Grow up to the point where you're ready to take care of her. You're ready to be the kind of wife that can help him and you can go out and be on your own. It forces you to grow up. It forces them to cultivate a relationship with one another. If we're going to be together forever, uh, we better make sure that this is the kind of person that I'm willing to be with forever. When you cheapen sex, you say, oh, well, we've had sex, but that doesn't mean that we've got to be together. Now it all becomes this carnal thing. But the Lord said, no, let's, re let's restrict this to a single person. It forces them to cultivate a relationship. It gives children a stable home, right? It gives them a mother and a father. And it also binds your imagination. This is something that God did. You say, well, how do you know, this is something you hear in the world all the time, how do you know that you're going to be sexually compatible with one another? Well, if you've only ever been with each other, you're not going to know anything else. You will grow up in that together. But if you're constantly going with other people, you've always got that in the back of your mind. You're constantly watching or, or engaging in other things. That's going to be in the back of your mind. But if you do it God's way, you're not going to deal with any of these other problems that the world has. You're not going to be shame associated with your sexuality and marriage. On the contrary, pornography degrades the imagination. You start bringing all kinds of weird ideas into your marriage bed. Fornication degrades the people involved. It says... All I want from you is your body. I'm not willing to give you everything else. But we love each other. If you really loved each other, you'd think that the other was worth waiting for. And worth, well, I'm not ready to settle down and get married. Then you're not ready to engage in one of God's greatest blessings. 
Divorce degrades the children by saying, we, we love you kids, but not as much as we want our own independence. Adultery degrades the spouse. Yeah, I'd like you to stay home and take care of my, my kids and take care of the house. I'd like you to go off and earn the money and bring it back, but I'm going to go out and do my own thing. God's plan for marriage solves all of that. So in God's community, we keep ourselves pure. And when we mess up, we step up and we do the right thing. So, if you're going to sleep around under the Mosaic law, it's going to cost you some money. So look at verse 18 now. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Well, that's short and sweet, isn't it? Witchcraft was not to be practiced in Israel, and that word can encompass all sorts of things. Fortune-telling is a big one in the Old Testament. What do you need to learn the future for? I'm God. I've got it all under control. And if I really need you to know something, I'll send one of my prophets to tell you. Necromancy, any kind of magic associated with the dead, calling on ancestors for power. A lot of Eastern religions will do that. A medium, right? A medium is somebody that stands between. So to, to contact another spirit or to contact somebody who's passed on. Spells and potions. These things, let it just be said at least once around here, are unutterably wicked. It's not cute, it's not cool, it's not fun. Witchcraft is evil. Such things not only deny God his rights as your Lord, but serious witchcraft calls upon demons. And here's the thing you need to know. That is a very real possibility. If you're going to be speaking out into the void, ignoring God's will and calling on some voice or some spirit to come and speak to you, you very well might hear from something, but it's nobody you want to be talking to. We believe, as Christians, in evil spirits that seek to deceive and degrade men. We are not to engage with that. And you know, the, the devil loves to come in. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, the, the devil either wants to make us scientists or sorcerers. Either wants us to make us so secular we don't believe in any of that stuff, or so fascinated with it that we can't leave it alone. We're not to engage with all that. The Bible tells us this is very real. And if you've ever known somebody who has a testimony in these kinds of things, they'll tell you this is real, but it's not exciting. It's horrifying. These are the kind of spirits that are going to cause God to open up the lake of fire. He casts them into the abyss so that they can't tempt men anymore. Why do we want to talk to them? Well, I'm not trying to talk to anything demonic. I'm just trying to do this or that. I'm trying to get involved in astrology or palm reading. Bible specifically tells us not to do those things. Did you know that? Specifically tells us not to look to the stars for answers, not to read the palms, people to get involved with, with crystals and that whole weird thing. So people don't do that today. My sister's a nurse. She'd have people come into her uh, emergency rooms all the time, and they'd say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to spread these crystals out all over the room, and it's going to heal, heal this person. It's like, what is that all about? Well, we believe in the, in the chakra and the weird spirit. I, you know, I, I can't describe it, but I'm okay with that. But it's like, it's this weird, mystical, magical energy. Even some kinds of yoga. Now, there's yoga and there's yoga, right? There's stretching. And then there's the whole, we're going to center ourselves. We're going to be, feel the earth beneath your feet. And <laughs> you talk to my buddies from India and, and Nepal about yoga, and they'll, they'll have nothing nice to say about it. You even start using these, these Hindu words. And I know that we Americanize it and it doesn't mean anything, but it's like, this is the way a yogi is a, is a Hindu or Buddhist, depending on the, on the region, priest. And it's the way they connect with the universe because God is in everything. And so as I engage my body and I can feel the wind and feel the earth, I can feel the spirits there. And psychedelic drugs, same thing. Galatians 5.20 says that those who engage in sorcery will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word for sorcery he uses is pharmakia. That's where you get the word pharmacy from. Say, so that seems kind of weird. No, no, it's not. All kinds of pagan and, and evil religions and magical practices use drugs and alcohol to achieve an altered state of mind. Native Americans would go out into the, to the desert and take peyote and hear from the spirit guides. You hear people that, that talk about their drug experiences. They all sound so familiar all of a sudden I saw these aliens and I saw these beings and they started talking to me. And if you're a Christian, that's like, you know, you're hitting the panic button right away when you hear that. They wanted to teach me something. You don't want anything they've got to teach you. These are all attempts to reach beyond yourself. 
Bible tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is he connecting those two things? Because drinking alcohol to the point of intoxication, spirits as we call them, to achieve an altered state of mind, you, you've, you've opened yourself. You're not in full control of your mind and your heart and your, and your body. And those who do such things find themselves trapped. It's deception. It's lies. It leads only to sin and then to fear and finally to death. It seems anybody I know who's ever engaged in this kind of weird stuff, astral projection, whatever, they say, well, the spirits came to me and they told me that I needed just to accept that I was gay or I needed to leave my wife or that it was okay for me to... It's like, really? So you're, you're talking out into the spiritual world and they're telling you it's okay to go out and engage in a bunch of sin. And then it progresses and people become so afraid and scared to death of these, these voices they've invited into their mind. And Mike McIntosh tells a story of how he was being harassed by these demons before he was saved and he thought they were his, his friends, his spiritual friends. And then he had a horrible life experience, got to shorten the story and he cries out to them, help me, what? I'm about to die, you got to do something for me. And they said, this is as far as we take men. We take them to death and that's the, that's the end of the road for you. So God will not have it in his community. Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. This is when, do you remember the story of the sons of Sceva? These were seven Jewish exorcists. And they heard that this guy Paul was using the name of Jesus to cast out a lot of demons. Well, we're not too proud to learn a few trade secrets. So they're trying to cast out a demon and they start to say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And this possessed guy looks him dead in the eye and says, oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And that demon-possessed man beat them up, ripped off their clothes, and sent them away bleeding and naked, it said. And people in the church heard about it. And this is what happened next, Acts 19, 18 and 19. Many of those who were now believers, these are Christians, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. All these people in the church that had these, you know, all right, I know there's only one God, but, you know, we've done this magic thing for centuries, and, you know, it's, it's cultural, it's part of my heritage, and then they find out, oh, this is real. And they all come and they all burn their magic books, 50,000 pieces of silver. And you can get all Judas and say, well, why didn't you sell it and give it to the poor? Because you don't want anybody else to be able to use it. As Christians, we are children of the light. And you must always be prepared to combat the darkness. It breaks my heart when you go into the bookstores and there are these huge sections. I'm not talking about like science fiction, like how to talk to the dead, how to engage in necromancy, how to read palms. There's a whole like actual magic section. It's frightening. And then of course on the other side for the other religion, you've got all these Christian books. Listen, don't engage in anything that is going to increase your curiosity for that sort of thing or take you away from the one true God. Shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, another pleasant one. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Another short commandment. Not allowing bestiality in God's community. Why would God feel like he has to put that in there? Because there are all sorts of crazy pagan rituals that involved sexual intercourse with animals. And I think, blessedly, this may be the only form of sexual deviance not fighting for mainstream acceptance in the United States right now. I think people are still like, uh, no, I'm actually, I'm actually okay with verse 19. You know, let's pass that law. But I will say this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. There are groups that create all strange kinds of pornographic material, which include animal elements in some of them. When you unshackle sex from God's truth, you end up in some really weird places. And I will say this, this is not concerning bestiality, but this country owes James Dobson and Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell a profound apology. Because they were saying in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if you keep unshackling sex like this, it's going to lead to higher divorce rates, it's going to lead to homosexuality, men and women are not even going to be going by those names anymore, and it'll even lead to pedophilia. And they were said, you bigots saying that somebody gay is the same as a pedophile, and now what do we have? We have college professors in prestigious universities. There was an article in the Washington Post not long ago saying we've got to destigmatize minor attracted persons. You ever see that acronym, MAP? 
pedophile is what you need to hear. Sin always overflows its boundaries. So, little quick lesson from that verse. Do not stimulate your imagination with lusts that cannot and ought not be satisfied. Verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. We've seen verses like this already. Prohibition against worshiping any other god. And you'll know that he says sacrifices to any god. So I think what he's trying to address here is any kind of sacrifice to any other deity that was just some kind of formality. Just kind of some kind of cultural or legal thing. This is to close up any kind of loophole. In this day, many business deals, many foreign alliances would be sealed with sacrifices to the gods. If you're making an alliance with Egypt, the king of this country would come and sacrifice to Egypt's gods, and Egypt would make a sacrifice to their gods. If you're doing a business deal with somebody, then this was just part of the culture of the day. But the Lord says, even that is prohibited. I don't care that you know that an idol is nothing. I don't want you engaging in that. The earliest Christians were killed for refusing to offer incense to Caesar as Lord. Simplest thing, isn't it? Take a pinch of incense, drop it in the fire. Caesar is Lord. And then that's it. You can go home. This was part of what the judges would say to these Christians. Why is this such a big deal to you? I've even heard probably apostate Christians say things like, why would they, why would they make such a big deal out of that? Why would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bow down to the statue? They weren't really worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. It was a loyalty thing. It wasn't about religion. It was about politics. God goes, "Uh uh-uh. Not even for that. Don't let yourself be duped into sin and false worship out of convenience. All sorts of things that people will tell you you've got to do to be part of this company. All sorts of... I, I don't know of any that in this room, but any of these weird secret societies that have all these strange blood rituals or your fraternity or your sorority or whatever it is. No, no, stay away from all that stuff. Those who did that were, it says, devoted to destruction. The word there is haram. It's just the word devoted. Those who do that will be devoted. The idea is you are going to be set aside and killed. Devoted to destruction. It's a very common phrase you'll see in the Old Testament. Let's go a little faster now. Verse 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. We will return to verse 21 when we get to chapter 23, verse 9, because they cover the same subject. But these are the first of God's commandments, that the poor and the indigent are to be cared for in his land. There was no official welfare state in Israel like we have. You apply for food stamps, you apply for welfare, whatever it is, and you'd be paid by the state. The people themselves were supposed to pitch in and help. And there are other things that God provided for, as we will see. And he says, if you oppress widows and orphans... He doesn't attach a legal penalty to it. What does God say? I will kill you. (laughs) If you're going to oppress someone else's widow and someone else's orphans, I'm going to make your wife widows and your children orphans. There was no legal penalty. Although we do see in Luke 18, verse 3, Jesus uses the illustration of the widow going to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So the idea here legally would have been, there is some recourse. If some widow comes in and says, look, I... I have to be with these children. Their father is dead. We have no family. We're, we're barely, not, barely off the streets, and this guy's coming after us. You've got to come in and, and help. But God also emphasizes, I will intervene. I will not allow you to mistreat widows and orphans. Psalm 10, verse 14. I read this verse in my devotions this morning. Speaking to the Lord, it says, You do see, you do not allow mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, O Lord, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. God pays special attention to destitute people. People that have no hope, no chance of help, God pays them special attention. And he cannot abide people who take advantage of them. For our part, you know, widows and orphans, we are very blessed to live in a society where even widows and orphans have all kinds of opportunities to be taken care of. 
But we are never to use the dire straits of a single mother or a helpless child or anybody else to our own financial or social advantage. There's all, any number of ways this could happen. But we're to have mercy upon them. Take care of them. Don't rely upon the state to take care of the poor. Food stamps and public schools, that's all fine. But you step up and do something about it. If you know someone in your life who's a single mother, a widow, or an orphan, you take care of them. Poverty should never have to equal oppression for God's people. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, one of the first projects the church did was they had a distribution for the widows in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives a long list of qualifications on how to take care of widows in God's church. When Paul came in and brought his doctrine to James and John and Peter, says they approved everything I said, all they asked was that I remember the poor. Don't just preach, Paul. Make sure you're taking care of the poor too. And he said, and of course, I was just eager to do that. So you, don't take advantage, but show kindness. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Sit on that one for a while. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Another law concerning poverty and depression, this time related to money lending. Israelites were not permitted to charge interest when they loaned each other money. They were permitted to do that for foreigners, Deuteronomy chapter 3, 23, verse 20, but not for one another. They also were not permitted to take somebody's necessity as collateral for a loan, like their cloak, for example. And we're so rich, the idea of somebody taking your jacket is more of an inconvenience than an actual danger. Proverbs 28, verse 8 says, Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. God goes, you make a ton of money by charging people exorbitant interest and manipulating finances to swindle people out of their money. I'm going to take it from you and give it to somebody else who's being generous to the poor. God himself, again, says, I will step in for those who charge usurious rates to their own people. Nehemiah chapter 5, they were supposed to be building the temple, but the Levites couldn't be there to help. And the, Nehemiah says, why? And they said, because we owe all this money to our governors and rulers, and they're charging us so much interest. We have to be working 24-7. We've had to sell our kids into slavery in order to pay off the debts. Nehemiah, like he often did, knocked some heads together. and said, are you out of your mind? You're not supposed to charge interest to one another. This is a fascinating passage to consider for us. And I'm not making any kind of broad social statement here. But it is interesting to consider our economy is built upon interest rates, is it not? Our stock markets, bond sales, all of that is interest. It's just money flowing back and forth. I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily. I'm just saying this is what God thinks about exorbitant interest. Consider payday lenders. You've seen that get cash now sign you see somewhere. You just need a little money to tide you over till next week. Come borrow some. In Alabama, the average interest rate for a payday lender is 456%. The average nationally is 611%. There are several states that are starting to cap the interest rate for payday lenders. And they're talking about their rights being violated or some other nonsense. Consider student loans. I'll tell you, I've just recently paid off my student loans. When I first got them, I was pressured I'm sure we all were, to pick the plan that doesn't pay off any of the principal, just allows you to keep paying interest for the rest of your life. You only have to pay what you owe. Pay what you owe or pay what you can plans means you're only going to pay the interest. You're never paying off the principal, so you're going to be paying us for the rest of your life. When I started to make serious headway paying off those loans, I got more opportunities to reevaluate the loans. Would you like to start over? You can reduce your, your time. All of that was trying to push me to pay more. We give these things to 17-year-old kids. Don't even let them buy cigarettes, but we'll let them take out $400,000 in loans. Or consider back in 2008, when everybody was sold those adjustable rate mortgages. Nobody had any idea what they were. All of a sudden, it, it switched, and now your interest rate was way higher. Everybody's payments go up. They don't know what to do, and the economy crashed. 
It doesn't matter if it's legal. Predatory lending is a vile sin. You know what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 30? If anybody asks anything of you, give it to them. What do you need all that money for anyway? Well, i got to get a return on my investment. Then, then you, is that what Jesus asked of you? Well, you know, I'll give you my grace, but you got to pay it off. No. Freely you have received. Freely give. And I might add here, we as people, especially as Christians, ought to be slow and cautious when entering into any kind of debt relationship. Is it always wrong? No, of course not. But we can, we can really get ourselves in trouble. Romans 13 verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love them. Like If you can help it, don't owe anybody anything. And if you, as a Christian, have the ability to help somebody get out from under a debt or a loan, we ought to do so gladly. I'd love to see a movement start in the, in the church, not just this church, but everywhere, where wealthy Christians just start paying off each other's student loans. It's crippling. My generation, the one below it, these and trillions of dollars of debt. People are going to be paying these things for the rest of their lives. Well, they, they entered into that agreement willingly, and no, no, they didn't. I didn't. I didn't know. I'd love to see us just start showing that kind of generosity to one another. Why wait for Washington to do it? Let's just take care of it each, take care of ourselves like we should. Verse 28, here's one that's going to get us all, I think. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Oops. <laughs> here's a verse about cursing, not just God, but a ruler. And that word for ruler is broad. Kings, governors, senators, judges, congressmen. I think we all understand the first part of this. You are to speak to God with reverence and respect always. Now, you read through the Psalms. God is not afraid of your honesty. Not afraid of like, being real and raw with God. Okay, whatever. But that's okay. If you want to be honest with the Lord, be honest with the Lord. But there's always an attitude of humility. Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. You're just a human. Don't talk so much. Be, be humble before the Lord. But look at that second half about cursing a ruler. This is something we've all been guilty of at one time or another, unfortunately. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 tells us how serious this is. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul says, submit to them, because God put them there. And do you know who was emperor when Paul wrote that? A guy named Nero. He used to dip Christians into candle wax and light them on fire. And I've heard people say things because they don't like the present or whatever administration. Well, Paul wrote that before Nero was persecuting Christians. If he had known, he never would have written that. I'm sorry, is the word of God inspired and inerrant or isn't it? The king is God's representative. So to curse him is to curse the Lord and his wisdom for putting him there. Can I share something with you that really bothers me? I remember my first president that I really paid attention to was George W. Bush. And he used to drive me crazy that friends in my middle school table, we thought we were so cool, said, I'm not going to call him President Bush. I'm just going to call him Bush because he doesn't deserve to be called president. And I used to be so angry. No, you show respect to the president. And then after that, it was President Barack Obama. Now all my friends start saying, well, he's, I'm not calling him President Obama because he's not, he's not doing what I want him to do, and he doesn't deserve to be there anyway. And then President Trump was elected. Hashtag not my president. And then we had another Democrat, President Biden. He's not really the president. We just keep doing this. How long are we going to keep doing this? Don't come at me with details. How long are we going to keep doing this? And let's get real specific. That chant that we're all so familiar with for President Biden. You've heard Let's Go Brandon before. You know what that actually is. And if you don't, it's a vile curse against our president. And it has been shamefully taken up, even in the church. And it's, you know, oh, it's just, it's just fun. It's just lighthearted. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You may disagree and even strenuously protest what a ruler does, but do not presume to know why God has allowed that man or woman to be raised up. You don't know. You have no idea why. 
Why would God, this can't be God's will. Oh, you know God's mind now? You, you all of a sudden have an exception to Romans 13? Well, we're a democracy and we choose our, and somehow God, is, his hands are just tied. Let God handle it. If you really, and if you're really concerned, like, Lord, look at what they're doing. Then bring it to God and say, God, you've got to do something about this. And I trust you, Lord. I trust that you know what you're doing. So take that to heart. Verse 29 and 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. We've already seen this some in chapter 13, referring the laws of first fruits. The firstborn of every animal was to be brought to the Lord. Some of them, like sheep, would be sacrificed. Others, like beasts of burden, like donkeys and things, could be redeemed and you'd pay a price and get it back. These were tied to the death of the firstborn in Egypt. It's also a picture of Christ, who is the firstborn of the Father. And so the Lord emphasizes this here. And really the emphasis here is on haste. It's like, don't delay. Oh, we'll get to it. Well, we'll get to it. He says, no, eighth day, you need to bring it in. The first part of anything was to go to the Lord. Now, under the new covenant, we do not have defined amounts of what we're supposed to give, but we are given the right attitude. And I'm just going to pass over this quickly for time's sake. But 2 Corinthians 9 says, give generously. God loves a cheerful giver. So every now and then I'll get asked, how much am I supposed to be tithing at the church? Enough that you can say with a straight face, I'm giving generously. I'm giving generously and cheerfully unto the Lord. He says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. If you use the grace of God as an excuse to be cheap, you've missed the whole point. Well, in the Old Testament, they only gave 10%. It's interesting you say that. There were several different tithes that they had in the Old Testament. It actually amounted to, if I'm not mistaken, 23%. The first part of your increase should go to the Lord. And I'll just say this. If you are so wrapped up in payments and subscriptions that you're not sure if there's room for the tithe to be going to the Lord, then you need to make an adjustment. Especially when you see the needs right in front of you, Christian. Give generously. Don't delay. Don't wait. Trust that God's going to take good care of you. Verse 31, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This is the law against roadkill in the Old Testament. Another one-off verse. This is the first dietary requirement we have in the Old Testament. He prohibits them from eating animals that they find dead in the field. You have no idea where it's been, no idea what diseases it might be carrying, so leave it alone. But primarily, you see, it was to be a mark of consecration, as would the other food laws. Now, we know scientifically now that God was actually rather smart in what he was telling them to do and not to do. But the Lord justifies it by saying, you are to be consecrated to me. The way you eat should cause your neighbors to sit up and go, what's your deal, man? Well, I'm consecrated unto the Lord. Tell me about that. What is that all about? And these were specifically singled out in the New Testament for that reason. The Bible goes out of its way to revise the food laws in the New Testament because there's no longer to be a distinction or separation between Jews and Gentiles. Mark 7.19 says that Jesus declared all foods clean. Paul said in Colossians 2.16, Let no one pass judgment on you related to food and drink. And in Acts 10.13, Peter was told, Rise, kill, and eat. But Romans 14 tells us one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. So there were some Jews at this time who really felt like they shouldn't be eating not kosher because they've been doing it so long. And there were some in the church that said, you know, I don't know where that meat, it may have been sacrificed to an idol somewhere and I just don't feel right about that. And Paul goes, you do whatever you want. You have liberty in Christ, but don't make a big deal out of it for anybody else. Don't assign spiritual value to carnal things like food. Jesus actually <laughs> said, why are you so worked up over something that you put in your mouth, you chew, it goes in your stomach and comes out the other end? I'm not making that up. Jesus said that in Mark chapter 7. So we'll get more into that as we get into Leviticus and the food laws there. But let's move on now to chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, 
nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Don't follow the crowd. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. These verses are about finding justice in court. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness. They were never to spread rumors and especially not to collude together to establish a lie in court. And it's always shocking to see how many people are willing to lie in order to bring down another person. And what's awful is very often you'll see is that this person has done this kind of thing nine or ten times. But the time that brings them down, it was a lie. They didn't do anything that time. We've seen people that try to fake hate crimes and things like that. It's like, look at this horrible thing that somebody did to me because I'm gay. It's like, well, nobody did anything to you. Yeah, well, this kind of thing happens all the time. But you lied about it. You try to get this person hurt because of it. doesn't matter the principle. God's concerned with every specific situation. Here's a quote from R.A. Torrey about lies and gossip. He says, Whenever you hear anything against a neighbor, do not believe it until it is proven absolutely to be true. And even when it is, keep it to yourself unless duty clearly demands the telling of it, which is very seldom. And with that, he just bankrupted Facebook. When you hear anything against a neighbor, don't believe it until it's proven. And even when it's proven, keep it to yourself, unless you are obligated to speak up, which does not happen very often. Whatever your reasons, you're not to promote lies and gossip and rumors, especially in court. And notice in verse 3, he says, You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So this is not just the rich against the poor, but vice versa. There are those today that want to tell you God is always on the side of the poor and opposed to the rich. What about this right here? God goes, in your courts, I don't care if they're rich or poor. It means nothing. The poor man's lying, he goes to jail. The rich man's lying, he goes to jail. That's called justice. That's why justice is blind, right? You consider the horrors of something like the French Revolution, right? Or Bolshevik Russia. Being rich was reason enough for you to be executed. God handles every case individually and fairly. He doesn't do statistics games with justice. Jesus himself would be condemned by false witnesses in Matthew 26. They finally got two who could actually agree on a lie together. And that's why he went to the cross. This is a very serious commandment. You be a herald of truth and fairness. And I love how he says, you shall not side with the many. Be brave, Christian. Don't go with the crowd. I don't care if you don't like the guy either. You evaluate it slowly and justly. Always some story about somebody that we're trying to get all whipped up against because he did or said such and such. You don't know him. And it does not affect your life one iota to have an opinion on what some celebrity said or did. Mind your own business. Verse 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Your enemy's ox or donkey. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, point and laugh and make him feel really stupid for it. No, it's not a different translation. It's not in there. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. But he got real quiet like, that's not what mine says. <laughs> you shall rescue it with him. These are verses about helping an enemy or one who hates you. These are laws against sins of omission. You might see your enemies. Donkey wandering off and go, ha, ha, you lost your donkey. I'm not telling you where it is. No, even in the Old Testament, you were required to love your neighbor. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And in this culture today of retaliation and revenge, everybody's looking for somebody they can drag down to pull themselves up a little bit. These verses from Jesus in Luke 6 are a strong reproach and a strong judgment against us. Even the enemies of the church, even pastors, shamefully, will stand up and, you know, it's okay to identify somebody who is trying to come against you and hurt you, but did Jesus ever stand up and make fun or tease or laugh at their misfortune? Would you help change the tire of a man who had cursed you out the day before? Would you do something like that for your abuser or your enemy? Or if the country gets occupied and the occupying force is hurt, would you help them? It's a hard road to walk. But note that for God, failing to show love is a very serious thing. 
We can do it. Verses 6 through 8. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuits. There's the other side. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Another segment concerning legal justice, this time relating to bribes and the poor. If a rich man is able to buy his way in a courtroom, then justice is dead and the poor have no hope. I consider, without any specific case in mind, the powerful corporations that are able to lobby their way into favor with government officials. I certainly can't afford to do that. Shouldn't be doing bribes. Oh, it's not a bribe. You've just been a good friend to us, so we're going to take you on vacation. Same thing. And any law that is made to target good people is an abomination in God's eyes. Like in Daniel chapter 6, verse 7. All he does is pray. Let's make prayer illegal. Then we got him. And for your part, he says, take no bribe. Whether that's at work, whether that's in the family. There are, there are dysfunctional families where mom and dad will try to bribe their children to do things that they ought not to do. Or in the church. People try to manipulate their pastors with money all the time. I have decided personally... I don't know who gives what. I don't, I don't look at that. When I look at, the, I look at the overall budget with the board members, I have no idea what you gave last month. And I intend to keep it that way. So that if somebody comes and wants to put a little pressure on me, it doesn't matter. I'm going to treat everybody equally. And if somebody were to come in and say, don't you know what I give to this church? That's a real quick way to make me mad. I'll just warn you right now. Don't you know how much I've given? What did Peter say to Simon the magician? Your money perish with you. Take no bribe, especially in matters of morality. Money should never be used to manipulate someone else's opinion. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner, for you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We'll include this with chapter 22, verse 21, very similar verses to each other. Both about sojourners, the word is gar, These were temporary inhabitants, non-citizens, resident aliens. They were not to oppress non-Israelites. Because he said, isn't that exactly what they did to you in Egypt? Why would you do this to them? You remember, the the Egyptians had a century where they were ruled by a, a dynasty called the Hyksos, which were Semitic people, meaning they were ethnically closer to the Jews than to the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians cast them off, that is probably the moment when they enslaved the Hebrews. We're never going to let that race rule over us again. So God calls upon their own memory to call them toward kindness to strangers in the land. And I mean, is there any other group of of people, any other group of sojourners that has been more oppressed than, than the Jews themselves? Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Golden rule. We have many sojourners in our land, and we have not always been good to them. Irish, Italian, Jewish immigrants were despised and ghettoed in New York. Chinese immigrants were persecuted in California. Something we don't talk about so much historically, but look it up. It was awful. Japanese citizens, citizens were put into camps in World War II. And today, all manner of nasty things are said and done against Mexican, Guatemalan, and so on, sojourners that come through our southern border. I'm not interested in your politics on this matter. You can desire to secure the border. You can want to stop human and drug trafficking and still love the people that come here. When sojourners... Illegal immigrants, undocumented people, whatever you want to call them. The Bible's word is sojourner. When they're paid pennies because they have no papers and they're, they're under the thumb of somebody else, says, I'll report you if you don't like this dollar an hour wage I'm giving you. When their rights are withheld in exchange for votes. We see this happen everywhere, don't we? This community is tossed back and forth between politicians trying to get their votes of what I'm going to do for you. It's, it's sickening. That's what we did to the, to the Irish and Italians not that long ago, actually. When they're slandered and hated, we have sinned. And I know we all have strong opinions on this issue, but I'm talking about people. And I'll tell you what, if I was a father living in one of those places, and I knew that I could get to America, I might take my chances. So however you may vote, 
do not engage in the same vitriol that other people do. There's policy and then there's prejudice. We don't cross that line. We don't cross that line. And when you encounter a person like that, you consider his heart and show him the love of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes this stuff gets more inflamed than it ought to be, but it's right there in the scripture. Love the sojourner. Take special care of them. Verses 10 through 12. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So this is the law of the Sabbath year. Not only every seven days, but every seventh year, the land was to lie fallow. No planting, no harvesting. And you see that this was done for among other reasons, that the poor would be able to harvest and have some food. So this is your vineyard, but there's poor people in it taking the grapes out because they don't have a field, maybe. We see this in the book of Ruth, where she's gleaning in the vineyard or in the, uh, in the field, although, of course, that was not the Sabbath year. I have seen that somebody speculated that the Sabbath years might have been staggered, where it wasn't that everybody rested the same year, but if you planted that, that field in whatever seventh year after that is when it would lie fallow. Or maybe it was like manna. Remember back in chapter 16, God says, I'll provide for you double portion on Friday so that you have enough on Saturday. Maybe it was, it was just like that. I'm inclined towards that one, although the other idea was interesting. This was God's welfare plan. Just like the Sabbath day was to provide rest for the workers, the Sabbath year was to allow other people to be fed. This is not only good agriculture, right? But it forced the people to trust God to provide for them. And the book of Leviticus will go into greater detail on that law of the Sabbath year. Every seventh seven, you'd have what's called the year of Jubilee. And all debts would be forgiven and all ancestral lands would go back to their families and all the slaves would be freed. It's going to be fun when we talk about that. This is the commandment that caused Israel to go into exile. They did not keep this commandment once. And it was this sin that caused them to be exiled for 70 years. You ever wonder why 70? 2 Chronicles 36.21 said that the exile was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God takes every part of his word seriously, so don't neglect the parts that seem inconvenient to you. Well, he's not taking a Sabbath year, so if I, if I do, I'm going to be behind. Or you're going to be exiled to Babylon. Verse 13, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Very much a repeat of chapter 22, verse 20. Except now he extends it from sacrifice to even speaking of other gods. What can I say to this just quickly? Do not delight in other cultural practices that are used to worship idols. It's one thing to be fascinated with another culture. I myself have been to Russia several times and I love learning about Russian culture and the music and the art and everything. But if you allow that to go beyond enjoying another culture to engaging in some of the pagan and non-Christian practices of them, you're making a mistake. There is already a God in our midst. And you ought to delight in his truth and, and the tradition surrounding our own faith. Right? 2 Kings chapter 1, is it because there's no God in Israel that you've got to go to the Lord of the Flies? You've got to get your spiritual vitality from weird podcasts on Spotify rather than the word of the Lord that's been given to you? Nehemiah 13, 24 said that half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, which was a Philistine city. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I think sometimes we do this to our own families. Our children speak the language of the Philistines, not the language of God's house. We must not soak ourselves so much in the world's culture that we have to fight for every inch of gospel truth in our lives or our children's lives. If you've not read your Bible, then read it. Don't look after somebody else's book. If you've not read sound theology, then don't chase after what they believe in Islam or Buddhism or anything like that. 
If you don't know your own Christian history, buy a book and read it. Learn the traditions, learn the songs, learn the names, learn the stories. Delight in what God has passed on to you. It's so rich to discover. That way you're not taking the names of foreign gods on your lips. Verse 14, down to verse 17. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. This is an important little section. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt None shall appear before me empty-handed. That little sentence would make its own sermon, but we'll worry about that one later. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So these are the three major festivals. He will add more in the book of Leviticus, and he will also take these and go into great detail. I'm very excited to talk about them because there is so much Jesus symbolism in these things. But for now, we'll just go over it broadly. First one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was Passover. We read about that before in Exodus. The second one is the Feast of the Harvest. So this would be when the harvest begins, the beginning of the harvest. Seven weeks after Passover, this is Pentecost. The third one was the Feast of Ingathering. Later, this will be called the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe your translation has the Feast of Booths. And this is when the harvest ended. Every Jew was required to come to these so that they could celebrate, so that they could cultivate worship and tradition among the people. Corporate worship has been essential since the beginning of the Bible with Cain and Abel coming to worship together. Hebrews 10.25 says, We are not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think we've all learned through this pandemic the importance of being together in church, haven't we? Christianity is not a solo activity. And many, not so much from this congregation, but many are gone, never to return. We had our pastors meeting yesterday from guys in the Clay Pinson area, and so many of them are talking about, we lost hundreds of people, and they're never coming back. They were watching on the stream, now they're not even watching on the stream. They're gone. To separate from God's people is to remove yourself from accountability, from instruction, from the love of the church. And I pray that God restores many of those that we've lost through this process. Verse 18, and then the first part of verse 19 you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So these are laws concerning sacrifices. Leviticus will give great detail on all of them. For now, we see the laws against adding leaven to the blood, probably a prohibition against superstitions. They would eat the blood very often by putting it in bread and they were not to eat the blood. And again, against letting the sacrifice remain unfinished by taking the fat home with you. No, no takeout box when you're sacrificing to the Lord. Once again, too, he commands that the best of the harvest be sacrificed to the Lord. These laws are against lazy worship, failing to do it in a timely fashion. Don't offer your God leftovers. Amen? You don't get to customize your worship to suit your own needs and your own schedule. And then the last one, most important of all, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Some of y'all need to come forward and repent right now. <laughs> this is strange, but this verse is repeated three times in the law. Chapter 34, verse 26, and Deuteronomy 14, 21. Best explanation I could find was that this was a superstition that they had at this time, that it would increase fertility by boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. It was some kind of sympathetic magic. Whatever the case, God had his reasons, and they were to obey them. Is God not the Lord of all things? I like ending on that weird commandment. Doesn't God have the right to tell us to do anything he likes? Don't pick and choose from the scriptures. Heed his voice and obey. If you cannot understand it, then seek to understand. Don't withhold your obedience until you can figure it out. So wrapping it up, that's the book of the law as it's found in the book of Exodus. We're going to continue moving forward with the, the ceremonies of building the tabernacle and the furniture and the priestly garments. Moses has been up on the mountain all this time, remember, receiving this from the Lord. And I hope you've been able to see as we've gone through this that to keep the law means an awful lot more than worshiping on Saturday, doesn't it?
And folks that want to tell you the church needs to keep the law, it's like, okay, have you boiled a goat in his mother's milk lately? Because that's just as much a part of it as the Sabbath day. There's no shortage of ignorant false teachers who want to pontificate about the law. But Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4, we'll end with this verse. Paul said, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The same idea that James said. If you want to do one piece of it, you've got to do all of it. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We have been set free from this law in Christ Jesus because he fulfilled it all at the cross and has given us liberty. None of us could keep these commandments. That's what Peter said in Acts 15. Why are we going to make the Gentiles keep all these laws? We can't even keep these laws. And it's our culture from thousands of years. So Jesus kept it for us. And now his righteousness is a gift to be received through faith. Don't let your curiosity or your conscience drive you to take solace in the written code because it seems simpler. There is no solace to be found there. Rest in the freedom that only faith can provide. But delight in the law of the Lord as it reveals the heart of our Lord.